Grocery is the largest undigitized retail format on the planet. And yet, everybody around the world grocery shops once a week, once a month. Some people, some cultures once a day. It's the most frequent consumer shopping behavior on the planet. And so there's a big gap when it comes to tech. Seeing the food industry where you have passionate people working on things and the whole industry digitizing, it's becoming e-commerce faster than ever. And the resources that you need to be the best e-commerce company are just inherently different. Like you actually need data expertise, you need engineering, you need to be able to figure out solutions that can optimize your business. And that was just something that um, a lot of these folks, small business owners, didn't have like the time or the resources to, to do properly. And so, you know, we looked at it and we're like, well, how can we, how can we bridge that gap and how can we really use this data plus like, you know, smart engineering to be able to allow uh, these folks to, to grow their businesses in, in, in new ways and become like, you know, the top performing digital companies, which they, every, every single restaurant across the country now is, is being asked to be. Welcome to The Value of One, The Power of All a podcast created by the Ron Brown Scholar Program. Since 1996, this organization has been investing in the next generation of African-American leaders. And this podcast highlights the stories of the scholars, alumni, staff, and friends that make this program special. Hey, everybody. This is Ray Pryor, 2015 Ron Brown Scholar, and you're in for a very special episode where you'll get to hear from not just one Ron Brown scholar, but two. Brandon Hill from the class of 2011 and Colin Webb from the class of 2014. Brandon and Colin have a decent amount in common. They're both Ron Brown scholars from nearby class years. Both attended premier institutions for technology and engineering, Stanford and MIT. And they're both co-founders and CEOs of tech startups in the food industry that are based in California and they both launched in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Brandon studied computer science at Stanford around the same time Colin was studying engineering at MIT, and both have taken the expertise they developed through their degrees and careers in tech and set out on a mission to revolutionize the food industry. Inspired by the entrepreneurial spirit and grit from their own family members, Brandon and Colin have built two platforms, Vori and Sauce, that aim to bring world-class technology to local grocery stores and restaurants so that they can make the same data-informed decisions that large corporations take for granted. Along the way, they learned a lot from developing a deeper appreciation, respect, and empathy for the folks who make sure society is fed, iterating and ultimately finding product market fit, and raising their first series of VC funding. Here's that conversation, starting with Colin giving an overview of Sauce, and then Brandon giving a synopsis of Vori. And it's incredible to be on this podcast with you. So uh, super excited here and super excited to uh, be able to chat with Brandon as well. Um, so for, for us at Sauce, and I'm, I'm Colin, for us at Sauce, we help restaurants double their profit margins through smarter, more dynamic pricing strategies. So in a digital world where everyone, digital consumers are ordering via DoorDash and Uber and they're ordering online uh, via digital menu boards or QR codes in the restaurant, uh, you can actually use data in a smarter way to help these restaurants better manage their revenue. So that's what we do. Awesome. Thanks, Colin. How long have you been, how long has Sauce been, been around for? Yeah. Yeah. We've been around for a little over two years now. Two years. Okay. 
Great. Awesome. Brandon, go ahead. Hey, Ray, bro. Thank you so much for having us. This is uh, an honor for sure uh, to be sitting amongst two giants here uh, with you and Colin and to be able to, to, to riff on uh, the future, riff on the past, figure out how we can build together. I'm co-founder CEO of Vori. I'm also RBS class, class of 2011. And, um, you know, quick background before I talk about Vori. Uh, originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, born and raised in the Midwest, and came out to study at Stanford. Um, was always passionate about the intersection of software and how we can use it to empower underserved communities and overlooked markets. It turns out that my parents have been in the grocery industry for over 40 years. In fact, my parents met and fell in love in a grocery store in uh, upstate New York at uh, the Price Chopper headquarters, which is a supermarket chain in uh, Schenectady. And so their four, three, four, five decades of experience in the B2B grocery supply chain, working at companies that we all know, like Nabisco, which makes Oreos and Kraft Heinz and several others, you know, my parents inspired us to start Vori. And so what is Vori? Vori, it kind of rhymes with sauce in a way in terms of its mission. So Vori helps supermarkets run their businesses more profitably and more efficiently by giving them an all-in-one platform to delight their shoppers, increase their sales, um, and uh, manage their inventory. So the, the clearest way to think about what Vori is, is a, it's kind of like Square, or Toast, or Shopify, but for grocery stores, an all-in-one point-of-sale platform that allows the shoppers to check out. We've all checked out at a grocery store, so that's us. But it has all the really cool, really important back-of-house software as well that helps the grocery store waste less food, optimize its pricing, and uh, control its inventory. So again, you know, doubling the profitability of the grocery store. So that's what we do. And um, we're live and over. So we, we started three years ago. We have uh, 600 live customers in, in California. Uh, we've gone through my Combinator and I'm co-founder with two uh, really close friends of mine who we also met at Stanford University, um, two other young black men. And um, yeah, we're on a mission to scale this nationwide. That's awesome, Brandon. Thank you for sharing that. So you, I mean, both of you, Colin, you went to MIT. Brandon, you went to Stanford, and you know both of those schools are are you know hubs for for technological innovation. And I'm sure you both have been chewing on different ideas of how technology can can transform the world, at least since then. Uh, but I imagine that the types of startups and, and and companies that your classmates at both of those schools are talking about uh, aren't necessarily in about restaurants and, and, and about grocery stores. And, and so I'm, you know, I'm just imagining in a classroom or when you're, you're having different case studies that um, even you two, when, when you were in college thinking about what you wanted to do, uh, you may not have thought about how you're going to help transform the people that help us uh, get food, prepare food, cook food, and, and, and take care of themselves as they do so. Uh, so I'm curious, how did, um, you know, Brandon, for you, we can, we can start with you. And, and I know a lot of it, Dates back to your family origins, but how did you come up with the idea of Warrior? Can both of you share a little bit of a story on when, when was the like the, the light bulb that that something like this needed to exist and that you wanted to step in to, to be the person to make it happen? 
Yeah, all credit goes to, um, I'd say it, it takes a village to raise a startup, for sure. And so it wasn't just one light bulb moment that any one of my three co-founders popped out of bed one day. It was like, wow, we want to go and, and build technology for grocery store, you know, uh, you know, love grocery stores. But the, I think the genesis, like I said, started with, you know, my parents, when I'm thinking of going back to 20, uh, early 2019, mid 2019, um, of course, it was pre-pandemic. I just shut down uh, my co-founder, one of my co-founders and I had just shut down a, a consumer social startup that we had done right out of school. And we were looking at what comes next. And, you know, um, I was choosing between, do I go to one of the big tech firms? And, and my heart was not in it. And I, I knew I wanted to try another at bat at entrepreneurship. And that's when my parents said, well, if you're not going to take the roles at Uber, you know, PM roles at Uber or Facebook and, the, the safe thing, you might as well go and target a industry that you, we think that you'll have a, you know, a decent, a really strong chance of success in. And that's the one where we have been in the family trade for, for decades. You know, even my grandparents had convenience stores, uh, grandparents, great aunts and uncles um, on my mom's side in, uh, in Oklahoma. And so this is a space that's not unfamiliar to my family. Uh, one of my older brothers is a uh, uh, a merchandising executive, a uh, publicly traded retailer, and so we have some of that DNA in the in the in the back in the in the family, and it starts to make sense. It's like yeah, everybody, grocery is the uh, largest undigitized retail format on the planet, and yet everybody around the world grocery shops once a week, once a month. Some people, some cultures, once a day. Uh, so it's the most con it's the most frequent consumer shopping behavior on the planet, and so there's a big gap when it comes to tech. So I think what ended up happening is a lot of our uh, early customers, when we start to roll out our first solution, which was a an order management tool that helped grocery stores order from all of their hundreds and hundreds of suppliers, just putting it on a single app on their phone, as opposed to moving them from pencil and paper and uh, legacy fax machine solutions. We just Gave them an app to order their inventory. That was the first thing we ever launched. It uh, it caught on really quickly, and I think from there our customers start to pull us deeper and deeper into more problems that they faced around the store, beyond just ordering inventory. And so the long way to answer your question is, it started with my parents, and then the market pulled us into the the better part of the idea. Yeah, family is important to me, and, and doing business with family is something I'm I'm, I'm really passionate about. I was sharing with Colin a little a little while ago before we hopped on that we're, we're starting a restaurant and um, here in the Dallas, Texas area. But I couldn't imagine doing it with anybody else. And a big reason why I think it's going to be successful is because of those those relationships. And so uh, I love that the origin for this is is generational for you. Colin, switching over to, to you, uh, can you share a little bit about when uh, original ideas that ended up becoming Sauce came to you and, uh, and, and a little bit of the story behind that? Yeah, yeah, and I, I really appreciated Brandon's story. Um, as as you mentioned earlier, mine uh, follows similar parallels. Um, it, it really did start with family um, and with you know me growing up in a family of small business entrepreneurs and seeing you know my mom and my uncle and my other like family friends just continue to start these um, you know brick and mortar type businesses, whether they be um, you know daycares, early educational childcare centers, uh, 
like an ice cream shop my uncle started, uh, whether it be, you know, like a vinyl shop for your cars or whether it be like, you know, gyms and, and clothing stores and all of that. Like I'd saw, seen my family start these types of businesses. Uh, some of them succeeded, some of them didn't. But overall, in every single case, you had this extremely passionate group of people who would, you know, literally be kind of passionate about the things they do, working really, really hard to achieve that, um, bringing their kids in, my, like myself and my brothers, to go and help them. So, you know, I'd be coming into the, uh, I'd be coming in on the weekends uh, to go and like wash dishes or clean, uh, clean toilets and all of that. Right? Um, it's like Brandon mentioned, it takes a village. And so, um, you know, particularly pertaining to, pertaining to the food space for me, it was a thing where, you know, my, my co-founder and I had gone through MIT. We became, became engineers. Um, I did fintech. I did self-driving cars. Um, I did AI. And, you know, realized that, hey, you know, we we'd both come from the similar background of having family members um, in these, like, brick-and-mortar businesses, but then also... Uh, seeing the food industry where you have passionate people working on things and the whole industry is digitizing. It's becoming e-commerce, right? Uh, faster than faster than ever. And the resources that you need to be the best e-commerce company are just inherently different. Like you actually need data expertise. You need engineering. You need to be able to uh, you know, figure out solutions that can optimize your business. And that was just something that um, a lot of these folks, small business owners, didn't have like the time or the resources to to do properly. And so, you know, we looked at it and we're like, well, how can we how can we bridge that gap and how can we really use this data plus like, you know, smart engineering to be able to allow uh, these folks to to grow their businesses in, in, in new ways and become like, you know, the top performing digital companies, which they Every every single restaurant across the country now is is being asked to be. So, yeah, that's powerful, Connor. I appreciate you sharing that. There's a uh, one of my favorite books is The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson, and there's a chapter in it where he talks about, uh, you know, a, a generation of of students uh, of, of college students whose parents and family members. Uh, own those brick and mortar businesses that, that both of you talked about and that uh, some of them will go off and become PMs at Facebook at uh, uh, you know at Microsoft or or at, at GM or uh, or a lot of these big tech companies obviously the 20th century version of what that would be um, and whereas the the thesis of the author is that if they were to pour the, the genius and the resources that they pull from institutions like MIT, like Stanford, and pour them back into those brick and mortar businesses, the, those those businesses, not just for the enterprise, but for their family would be transformed for generations because they brought that knowledge back. And I feel like both of you did a version of that. Both of you could be at one of the big tech companies right now doing doing some amazing things. and and But you've chosen to build platforms that empower your family members and people like them, which I think is is really inspiring. Um, was was that thesis or that that theme or that value? Uh, it's it's clear that it's it's part of who you are as people. But was that always what you thought that um, Ori and Sauce would be? Is is a B two B tool that empowers restaurants or grocery stores, or did you think that there was there was something else in this space that you wanted for yourself or your company 
Um, I, I think it's just a powerful that but both of your companies only do as well as your customers do. And the entire purpose of you existing is to help those people. So I'm wondering where I see the origins of those values, but I'm wondering, was that always part of the business model or, or was that something that kind of evolved over time? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm curious what, what Colin thinks, but I do think that we, um, you really start to build, the more time you spend with the, you know, with, with grocers, with, with the owners of these legged family owned businesses, with uh, their employees, their stalkers, their order clerks, you really develop this in, intense sense of empathy um, of what it takes to crank, to, to keep a grocery store running, to keep a community fed, and to kind of crank the machinery that, uh, you know, moves $800 billion worth of food every year. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite intense. And you, um, you kind of realize there is a, there is a, at least within grocery stores, I can be very specific. We are targeted at serving what we call independent grocery stores, which are, you know, mom and pop, you call them mom and pop, you call them local. Our customers are immigrants from Mexico or from West Africa or from Eastern Europe or just, you know, fourth generation American, you know, business owners that want to pass their grocery chain down to their kids. And they're very important institutions, whether it's Deluki's market or Ava's downtown market, who named it, you know, Juan named the store after his, his daughter, Ava, or Molly Stones. And it's, it's really, really these guys doing great work, but competing against Walmart, Kroger, Whole Foods, Amazon, who have incredible leverage, use of CapEx and the technology. And I think, um, you know, when we when we first started out, we just honestly, before we wrote a single line, we would sit in the back office of grocery stores, just listening to their problems, walking the aisles, like looking at the selection, hearing their problems. And uh, I think it kind of baptized us in like the, the sociocultural experience of, of, of like their lives. And then it's interesting, you start to actually, I think about this a lot, you actually can draw some non-obvious parallels between the experiences of small business owners, especially in the food space, and the experiences of African-Americans, which is to always get the shortest end of the stick. So in the supply chain, small retailers actually get the worst pricing and the worst selection and the worst everything compared to the large chains. And I feel like, you know, our people know that better than anybody, what it's like to get the worst selection, the worst access, the worst resources, the worst economics. You having to make a way out of no way. A lot of our grocery stores literally juggling a thousand plates at one time, 30,000 products, dealing with hundreds of customers, dealing with very thin margins, but still having to be is basically them and the hospitals were the only two institutions that were open during COVID. When the whole world was falling apart, grocery stores could not sleep. Grocery workers were essential and nurses and doctors were essential. And basically the rest of the world went black. And it's like, you know, in the crucible of emergency, uh, I think black people can relate to being the ones who are there to uh, basically uh, be the, the, like those in the infrastructure of society to keep everything afloat uh, when everything's going crazy. 
So first, we just tried to operate in a space where we thought we where we had some, uh, you know, family experience. And then it became, I think, you know, about how can we level the playing field for these small businesses, but also seeing um, just empathizing on like a personal level with their struggle across difference, because it's not like a lot of our grocery stores look like us. You know, it's, it is honestly mainly an older and whiter industry. And so it's very can be culture shock to see a young black team walk in there trying to sell them technology, but we can still relate to many of the themes of their challenges based off of our ancestry. And so um, that has made the journey even more um, apart from it being a strong commercial opportunity, there's almost like a spiritual connection to it as well. Yeah. That's, that's amazing, Brandon. And I, yeah, I mean, it's, (laughs) it's awesome to, to, to hear about it. I'm sure it's probably, nostalgic thinking back on those days when you were literally in the grocery store walking down the aisles with your co-founders um you know trying to to get a better sense of the problems that folks were facing for us you know we didn't we didn't necessarily spend a bunch of time like actually inside the restaurant but we did see a couple of things that i would say um you know kind of guided us in this direction first off you know for us we we didn't start off doing dynamic pricing at all and so you know we started off on the premise that you know everyone says it's either like 60 percent or 90 percent of small businesses fail within the first year right um and so you know we started off saying well there's a bunch of data out there that you know is ever growing ever present and could potentially be used to allow us to make better decisions is there a way we can like, you know, bring that 90% of businesses going out of business, uh, small businesses going out of business down to 0%? Is there a way that, you know, maybe that had something to do with like site selection and where you actually opened shop? You know, as, as uh, Brandon mentioned, a lot of times, like these small businesses, the people who start them are are us like they're the they're the immigrants from um you know they're the immigrants from mexico they're the immigrants from africa or eastern europe or you know they're the you know folks trying to make a dream happen out of like the suburbs of atlanta um and that you know that was my family right um out of atlanta and you know they they get the the short end of the stick right it's harder to get capital it's harder to get loans it's harder to get guidance it's harder to get resources for anything that you're trying to do and when my co-founder and I were looking at that, you know, we were wondering, okay, is there a way to, you know, actually use data to kind of democratize that access to opportunity? You know, a lot of the big companies, um, you know, that Brandon mentioned, whether it's like your your WalMarts or your uh, your your Kroger's, your your gigantic companies, there, like they have gigantic partnerships and data engines that allow them to always know like where to open up a store, right? Like they spend billions of dollars on that um, in the restaurant space. You know, McDonald's has a billion dollar technology budget and that's huge. That's like something that can, you know, allow McDonald's and allow like the gigantic companies to, to grow extremely largely. But what about like the individual mom and pop? Is there a way that we could use data to empower those people? And so we initially started with site selection um, and created a, a concept called Ensemble where, you know, it was like a retail real estate matchmaking platform to pair small business owners with the locations in which they'd be most likely to be successful in uh, with regards to their data um, and using their data to make that decision. 
as we were getting started, we started getting a lot of interest from folks. We're going to different conferences. Uh, you know, we learned the most by, you know, going to like literally going to like regional conferences and events where you'd find retailers or you'd find landlords um, and just talking with them, trying to put together like a, uh, you know, we put together fake fake products, right? Before even writing a single line of code, like put together a demo on an iPad, um, you know, like using uh, prototyping tools and said, hey, like we've got this product that we're developing. What do you think about this? And like, that was how we iterated. And then, you know, the time that, at the time that COVID happened, like retail real estate, at least for, for a short period of time, like evaporated, right? Um, and everyone that we were talking to told us, hey, like we're not planning on expanding at all for like the rest of this year. So like stop talking to me. <laughs> and so, you know, that kind of forced us to to really take a critical look at, you know, what we were doing. Like, did we want to wait for this opportunity to open back up again uh, later this year? Like, you know, who knows when COVID would be done with, right? Uh, at least at the in the spring of 2020. Or did we want to find something that, you know, perhaps could help these same like business owners, these restaurateurs faster uh, without some of the, you know, the challenges that, you know, as we went along, we'd uncovered with our initial idea. And so as we were spinning on, um, you know, ideas that that summer and that fall, we came across sauce and, um, you know, in our, our typical approach, we kind of do this iterative testing thing where we'll, you know, act like we have a product, tell it to a bunch of people, see if they're like, you know, see if it buy it, see if it, um, you know, gets that the hypothesized problem um, that that we saw people having and, and sauce just ended up actually kind of growing faster than we'd ever seen from uh, from an interest standpoint. And we got folks to, you know, to sign up for beta programs and, and all of that before even before we even built the product. And so we're like, okay, well, now we've got people who are signed up. Let's like, let's go and build this thing. Um, and it was along the same veins of, you know, using data to help people uh, grow their business in smarter ways, um, but more on the, you know, actual day-to-day performance side, um, performance of your restaurant as opposed to, to site selection. And so that's that's a little bit on how we how we got to where we are now, but certainly very different in the beginning. Colin, what was it like that moment where uh, you kind of, it sounds like you started with a wedge site selection and it got a, it got a good response. Seems like there's like some, uh, some challenges and then you ended up like evolving the product to a, address a, a different pain point. And then all of a sudden the product was getting pulled out of your hands. What was that like, that experience like for you, you know, when you kind of, oh, wow, we landed on like the thing, like, oh, this is the white hot center this is what product market fit looks like you know what was that what was that feeling like yeah um i mean initially initially terrible and then great (laughs) terrible when we were uh when we were you know finding out that just site selection wasn't going to exist for a while um that that wasn't fun at all um you know i had kind of an automated email cadence going out and uh it was a thing where we were we were about to launch, right? And it was like March of 2020. <laughs> and you know, first email goes out and everyone's like, Great, sign me up, like scheduling meetings. This is awesome. Second email goes out, and that's like as COVID is starting to happen, and folks are like, Hey, can we uh can we push this back a little bit? I'm not entirely sure. We've we've got to like figure things out on our side. Uh third email goes out and it's like, Hey, um, 
you know, rather than meeting next week, let's like, maybe let's meet in like two months or so. Um, you know, as you can see, like the situation is, is, is extremely like really affecting us. And, you know, some people are already telling us that they're canceling their, you know, their, their like expansion plans for the rest of the year. And then I, I was in a grocery store at the time <laughs> when I started receiving email replies because I'd forgotten to turn off like the fourth email. And so like that, it automatically sent out and it sent out to everybody that didn't respond to the first, second or third ones. Uh, and literally I remember looking down at my phone and I had the, had the whole like quarantine mask on. And <laughs> it was like, it was like clearly COVID at this point. Um, and the, the email was like, for the love of God, Colin, don't ever talk to me again. Like my business is falling apart. Like this is like, don't like, I can't believe you want to, uh, you know, you think I'm going to expand right now. Right. And so like literally our entire product direction that we were going in like evaporated. And then that, that was pretty crushing. Um, at the same time, you know, obviously it was a crushing for everybody across the world, uh, who is going through just the, the effects of, of COVID. Um, but we, you know, we knew we had to do something else and we iterated on a bunch of different ideas, uh, you know, sauces in the first, like the first next idea that we came across, we, we had a bunch of different ideas and with each of them, you know, like we throw them at, like we test our hypothesis about particular, like similar tangential, um, you know, problems that uh, folks had and, you know, test whether a solution would, would be something people would tuck on. Um, some of them, some of them got a little bit of traction, got some folks to, to, to speak with us. At some point we were like, you know, touring around LA with, um, like the LA Dodgers and like Applebee's on a uh, similar like kitchen concept, um, still in the real estate space, still in the data space, um, kind of a merge between um, ensemble and, and a little bit further than that. But, uh, you know, it, it kind of got to a place where it was stalling and we were like, okay, well, this isn't, we're not entirely sure like how quickly this is going to grow. Like maybe we should try something new. Um, and at that point we, you know, we decided to put some feelers out for sauce and then, you know, we started getting responses and uh, those responses turned into demos. Those demos turned into signups. Those signups turned into, Oh wait, let's, we need to actually go build a product. So <laughs> that, and then the product turned into, you know, initial early results, which allowed us to raise um, a couple million dollars for our seat. So, um, it kind of happened really quickly there. Um, but yeah, complete, complete turnaround of, <laughs> of events. It's a dope story. Yeah. And I love hearing the, the iterative. I mean, I just, I, I, I resonate so deeply with that process, Colin, and kudos to you, like being able to find like a scientific method for discovering product market fit, you know, like I think we do a similar thing. You, with these with these small businesses, it's like, oh, let's test the problem by mocking it up in Figma and taking some screenshots or some like a rough prototype and act like it's a product and show it to some potential customers in a store and see how they respond. And you can go from thing to thing to thing until it's like, they're like, that one. I want that one. That one helps with my pricing. Oh, that one helps with, you know, uh, 
oh, I can, you can receive inventory on this. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more. I would imagine which, what you're, what you have already found is what, what we're finding as well is there's a, uh, with brick and mortar businesses as a whole, there seems to be not just even any one problem that they're facing. There's like several problems at any given time. As you conquer one problem, then they grant you the permission to, oh, wow, okay. Well, why don't you solve this other problem that we have? I think that's what we saw with our, our first thing that we built, built like an ordering app. And, um, well, we actually, we iterated through a few different like failed concepts uh, and like through that method of like, well, let's, let's design something make a really ugly prototype and put it in front of a few customers, a few rounds of that failed. And then, and then we landed on this, this ordering thing. And that, you know, our first cut, first person who actually like saw the mock there was like, yeah, you need to build that. I would pay you $300 a month for that. And I think that was when we were like, Oh, you would pay for this. That's useful. And then a couple others. And we say, well, a couple of how much would you pay for this? We'd pay X hundred dollars a month. Okay, great. And we built that. I don't know, like 17 days after we start building, just super scrappy thing, put in the hands of somebody and they were like, wow, I have goosebumps. I've never had an ordering experience this easy. And we're like, oh my God, we may have something. And then we, that's when we got a whole bunch of stores on that. Our first one, uh, first order of $200 worth of kombucha on the app, placed by Abby, who was the director at Duluth Market. She now is on our team full time as our first hire. And, and she's been amazing. And then we, scaled like 10 stores and then 50 and then 100 and then 300 and 600. But in the course of doing all of that, that's when a bunch of the stores starts, you're handling our ordering piece. Is there any way you could like connect that with our back office inventory? Could you connect that with our point of sale? Could you connect that with, we're dealing with our invoices. We're running into pricing challenges. Oh gosh, we have e-commerce. We don't know what's, there's just so many things. And then that's what led us to like, all right, we just got to kind of, the stores basically asked, could you build the whole end-to-end operating system for the grocery store? And so we've in the past year basically been on this very, very large scope, ambitious uh, project of building like the end-to-end system. Um, And we've just launched it in our first couple of stores and it's, uh, it's exciting, but yeah, you start to piece together the puzzle pieces of these various problems, and then you end up getting this whole picture. Um, and it's, it's fun and exciting. Yeah, and a common thread across both what both of you shared is is uh, both of you had to really dive all the way in and develop a real deep, intimate knowledge of not so much your products, which, like you said, at various times didn't even exist yet, but really about your customer and 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 the problems and the challenges that they're facing in order to be able to serve them well. And and that allowed you to iterate into uh, and will continue to evolve into whatever sauce and warrior will be, you know, over the future. I'm curious if you can share, both of you share a little bit about where your companies are now and, and whatever key milestones are, are important for you and, and what you're excited about. Um, obviously we, no one knows what the what the future holds, but maybe just for the remainder of this year, twenty twenty three. What what's on the horizon for 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 each of you and your companies based on where you are now? Cool. I think I think I can start with that. Uh, I would say we're a little bit earlier um, <laughs> than 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 Vori here. Uh, so we're still, you know, we're still like kind of validating our proof of concept for one of the new products that we uh, that we launched in the fall last year. Um, and so, you know, we got to a place where 
like we built this pricing engine for restaurants. Um, it worked in some cases. Uh, in other cases, people didn't trust it. And we were like, okay, well, why, why don't they trust it? And what we found out was that they didn't quite understand it. Um, and, you know, dynamic pricing, what we're doing is sometimes it's like a difficult and challenging thing to understand. And so we kind of went back to the drawing board of, well, how can we get people to understand this better? Um, which led to us kind of building an entirely new product uh, that made it really easy to control um, prices at scale and dynamically. And so like, you know, giving people the controls was something that we found really went a long way. And, you know, having people have that light bulb moment of, oh, okay, this is, this is how this works as opposed to, you know, just like an AI engine, like going and changing my prices automatically due to some like black box data, right? Um, you know, nobody wants to not know what's going on with their business. And so um, we cleared a lot of things up there, launched a product in the fall, uh, ended up, you know, targeting some of the major like enterprise restaurant chains um, because we saw them reaching out to us saying, hey, like we also have this problem as well where we're trying to be more profitable in this digital world. Like, can you help us? And so um, ended up showing a really good success case with a uh, kind of mid-market chain um, out of Ohio. And they had about 50 or so locations and they literally ended up doubling their margins through uh, through onboarding onto our, our system. And, uh, you know, we started some more trials with additional, like, large enterprises. And now we're getting some of the, like, largest national chains in the country to reach out saying, like, hey, you know, we're looking, we're looking at something like this. Uh, can you guys help us do dynamic pricing? And so we're at this um, interesting inflection point where, you know, we scaled and closed, like, one really big uh, enterprise deal um we still are very passionate about the smbs and so uh we started two partnerships one with another technology company in the space but then also um one with a major delivery company uh to go and like you know resell our product to small businesses and so you know we're at a place where i would say there's a lot of like seeds that have been kind of laid in the uh in, in the soil here uh, that are really quickly turning into um, pretty big opportunities for us but you know we're, we're still early we'll see how we'll see how things play out um, but so far it's it, it's looking it's looking like different from when we first started sauce it's looking like the industry is now like really ready to prioritize um, these smarter approaches to being able to manage their menus and manage their prices and and engage in something like dynamic pricing which um when we first got started uh you know was it wasn't something that a lot of the like major enterprises or um you know were kind of really excited about now they are yeah that's awesome thank you for sharing that Colin. um what about you brandon where, where is worried today and i know you shared a little bit about how many um stores you have but what are you thinking about uh, for, for the remainder of the year yeah so that was um we we started with this um lightweight app that got essentially think of it as like a free product that we distributed to a bunch of stores to to learn how they work and then what ended up happening was um 
we pivoted and extended that product to build what we have now. So with the with the full, what we call the Vori OS, the Vori operating system, um, that is, you know, that's your that's your checkout, that's your payment processing, that's your inventory management. We have just installed our first. We're doing our first. We'll just install our first customer. We're doing our second customer as we speak. Um, just in the past three weeks of this brand new product, um, collecting the case studies and like seeing the delta. And I think what we really wanted, because we'd be very happy this year. Like, we raised our Series A in um, August, led by Factory, um, really dope um, young firm um, in Menlo Park, and along with you know Greylock and uh, um, Clear Ventures um, in that round. But, you know, we're headed towards Series B. I think the top thing in our mind is, like, one of the checkpoints between now and Series B is getting our first cohort of extremely happy uh, customers running on the end-to-end system where the customers are just like, wow, this is making my business make more money and it's making me more profitable and we're able to measure that. So, getting right now it's, like, dead set on getting our first 10 screaming happy jumping up and down customers like wow i'm glad i switched from my old legacy system to vori and then from there you know we can that jump starts the rest of our kind of plans you know there's you know generally by series b you know you want to be you know there's different benchmarks anywhere between three and ten million dollars in arr and you know we just want and revenue rather you know, this, i'll just say uh revenue and it's um you know really showing that the beginnings of the business is starting to work. So before we, before we see that type of revenue growth, it's uh, just getting these core customers, these first customers on this end to end system, really, really happy. And that sometimes requires a lot of bedside manner, like going, like we still in the stores, we go to the stores, we bring donuts to the stores. Like, Hey, we're going to train you guys on X, Y, and Z. Or like, can you guys train us on like, what's wrong with, the product or like how can we um improve the process of installing this technology or um hey what are uh, what would you like us to tweak about this and, and just constantly learning from these early guys um you know it's all about yc says a lot and we definitely take to heart like sometimes you do things that don't scale in the early days um of a product no matter what scale you're at just to kind of make it work and, and make it fit with the to the customers like actual needs. So that's the focus, small group of uh, insanely happy customers. And, you know, we have some, we have a way to go there. Um, but once we do that, that unlocks a, uh, the next stage of our plan. That's awesome. Sounds really exciting. I mean, I'm thinking back to, to the beginning of both of your companies starting at a very interesting time in the world. Uh, but it was also a very interesting time to be a black founder and a black CEO, uh, particularly for both of you, uh, being successful in raising money to to launch your venture, and over the last few years, particularly since 2020, if you you know just read the headlines or, or gloss over social media, it seems like there's money all over the place for black-owned companies and, and black entrepreneurs to to find opportunity and, and to to get funding and to to launch, and um, some folks did experience that and, and some of folks didn't. Uh, but I think sometimes there's a bit of a uh, a disconnect between the the illusion of what it's like to, to raise money over the last few years and, and what it was actually like. Um, so can, can both of you share a little bit about what your 
uh, fundraising journeys have been. And, um, and if your identity and then the identity of your team played any significant role in any successes or opportunities, as well as challenges that you faced trying to do that. Sure. I can start here. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I feel like, I don't know. There's, there's always like the, 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 the space is so scattered that it's, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to really see, you know, it's hard to really see like, Oh, this is how things work this way because like somebody else fundraises in, in an entirely different way than you. In my experience, I think it had been easier to raise uh, certainly easier to raise millions of dollars than to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, which is which is like one of those counterintuitive things where, you know, when you're first getting started, like you want to be able to uh, get like a proof of concept going, like you want to be able to support yourself and your co-founder. Maybe you need like a couple hundred K or like at least just something to uh, allow you to first like you know, pay yourselves and survive and like actually, uh, you know, get something off the ground, but then also like pay for any like R&D or development or any like engineering or, um, you know, research that you need to do. And so, you know, when we were first raising, um, you know, like our, our, our first time raising took longer than like our actual seed raise. Uh, and that was going out to everybody that we know that could potentially have money and saying like, Hey, uh, we're working on this idea. Um, we'd love to share more with you about it. We also have an opportunity to invest. Um, another counterintuitive thing that we learned is that, you know, you don't, you don't go and ask people for money. Uh, you go and give them the opportunity. Right. And so, um, and, and investors don't want to, a lot of investors don't want to invest in somebody who needs money um, counterintuitively. So it's like you want to present like, hey, this thing is going to take off and like you're going to like if you don't invest, you're going to miss the boat. Right. Um, and so uh, anyway, we the first folks that we initially raised from were our friends and our family members like like family friends, some family friends were doctors and we're like, Hey, you know, is this something that they're interesting to you? And, you know, doctors, doctors have a lot of money. Um, the very first person that I met, uh, or that invested in us was somebody that I actually met on an airplane, completely like random encounter. Uh, I was coming back from, I was coming back from, uh, a flight from Europe over to Atlanta and I saw this guy who was uh, just knocking back like vodka orange juices. And <laughs> I was like, huh, this is interesting. And he just like, just like ordered like another one after another one after another one. Um, and he was, con he commented on a book that I was reading. And I think I was reading like uh, Ben Graham's like intelligent investor or something like that. And he's like, Oh, I love that book. And we started talking about books um, and then started talking about other things. Turns out like this guy is a contractor uh, in the Middle East working on like some IT uh, contract gigs. And uh, he lives in Atlanta and, you know, he was super interested in what I was doing. I was going to go, you know, work and build self-driving cars for the next year at uh, GM Cruise. And so, you know, we just stayed in touch and, like literally when we went to raise, I literally emailed everybody that I knew I was like, Hey, I'm taking this next step, quitting my job, going to work on this thing. 
Uh, and he's like, oh, this thing looks really interesting. Let's like chat more. And so ended up chatting, ended up investing. But overall, that that time for us took, I would say, you know, when we first got started, maybe a little less than two months um, or maybe like a little less or a little over two months or whatever to raise like an initial 500K. Initially, it was like none of it was from VCs at all. It was all from angels. Um, and then we had a, you know, fortuitous like, you know, VC come and, and, and put some money in at the very end. When we raised the second time around uh, targeting larger VCs, uh, that happened a lot faster. And so our seed, I think we raised it in a little over four weeks, uh, maybe four to five weeks or so. And that was, that was, you know, a little over $3 million. And I think, you know, going back to the earlier point, I think one of the reasons why at least we found it easier to raise more, obviously that's a different market than there is now. Um, easier to raise millions of dollars than hundreds of thousands of dollars is that, you know, sometimes it requires talking to a hundred people or 150 people um, in order to like get somebody to say yes. Right. Um, and there are people who will, um, you know, be really interesting who you want to invest in you and like, no matter what you're building, even if you have, you know, the next Facebook or the next like, um, you know, super like multi-billion dollar, um, you know, startup company, uh, there'll be people that will just not invest in you just because they, you know, they don't believe in what you're doing at all, or they don't invest in that space. Like you just have to figure out like, okay, are they somebody who just generally invests in this space that I'm building in? And then obviously like, you know, do they like my approach here? Do they like me? Do they trust me here? Um, not everyone's going to be that person. Um, but in our experience, you know, it was easier to find and go talk to, you know, a bunch of like publicly listed, not publicly listed, but like just outward facing VCs where you could go and like actually build a list of 150. Like we actually just have like this list of 150 plus VCs, right. Um, that we, uh, will go and, you know, try and talk to, um, easier to go do that than 150 rich people who are willing to put in like tens of thousands or put in like a hundred thousand dollars, uh, for your company. So, you know, Long way of saying we've kind of had a, a nuanced experience with with funding, um, but I don't necessarily. I mean, you know, maybe you could say that, like, being a, a Black American did affect like the funding experience. I, I think it. I think it did. At the same time, you know, I've seen, you know, I've seen friends. Depending on the space that you're working in, like, you know, one of my friends just raised money for um, an AI company, and like like before even having like a, a pitch deck together, people were giving him millions of dollars, right? And so, um, you know, I think it really just depends on what you're building you and the approach. But I think, you know, for everyone, you should probably prepare to speak to like over a hundred people. And um, in that process, it's, you know, you'll get to learn a lot. You'll get to figure out the necessary problems with your business and improve them. Um, but, you know, after speaking to five people, like you'll iterate after speaking to the next five, the next 10, you'll iterate. Right. Um, and oftentimes it, it is hard to, it's hard to really reach a hundred no's, right? Like if you speak to enough people, like somebody is going to eventually say yes. Um, and so our, our approach has always been like, just take that, 
take that magnitude um, approach here and and obviously grow along the way. I co-sign everything Colin said, honestly, not even much more to add. Um, I, I'll say, maybe I'll say three things. One, I do recognize like as a straight cis male founder that is black, um, there is privilege even in that. It's, and also, honestly, there's also university privilege, specifically in this domain. Like, I think, I, you know, Colin's nodding, you know, the, the MITs, the Stanfords just have that, that halo of, like, tech, tech, and that helps, I think, you know, being a Black woman founder from, um, you know, Alcorn State University is just the, the, that, the challenges that she would overcome are way higher than those that I would overcome with an equally with you know equal capabilities and equally strong like you know concept and traction, hundred percent. So I think that's there is intersectionality in in that for sure, um, and so I recognize that. But I definitely see on a whole. So so therefore, on the whole, I can't really I I I can't really ever point to a, a point in time fundraising where it's been like an actively racially hostile experience um, is the reason why I say that, but we know what the math says and the math says is, you know, in the partner meetings, we know that disparaging comments are made. We know that we make, I think the report just came out um, 0.69% of all venture capital goes to black founders. We know all the stats, they are frustrating. Um, And, you know, we just, we have to just, what do we have to do? We have a car away out of no way, unfortunately. But, um, you know, that being said, just the experience fundraising for, for anybody is honestly, it's super intuitive and it's super like insider specific, like it, knowing the right people, getting into the right networks, asking for the right introductions, I think there are maybe some organizations, I'd say like, in my experience, honestly, a lot of people like to hate on Y Combinator. I really do appreciate Y Combinator for being, it does feel most democratic in terms of you literally apply. And, you know, if you're a strong thinker, strong, you're a hustler, you have a decent idea or a decent traction, like you get in and then they give you the networks and teach you the playbooks. Like that helped me on my first company big time. And, and my co-founders big time. But I don't think there's a lot of, I don't see a lot of institutions like that in Silicon Valley that are just like, come one, come all. You know, it's it's more so, oh, I was, on, I was, I was in the fraternity with that guy uh, when, at Yale. And uh, so then, you know, he brought me in at, into this firm, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, how do you get to know them if I'm, it, it becomes non-deterministic, which, uh, you know, inherently creates barriers to entry. I really would love to see more institutions. Like if RBS rolled up, rolled out a venture fund, that'd be crazy. We'd love to see that. I'd love to see you <laughs> roll out a venture arm, Ray. Like that's, that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about that breaks the whole thing open, you know? And then you just need a couple of us to really return the fund. Like that's what we need is a few of us to return funds. What is, you know, I think we all know what it means to return a fund for the audience that's listening. We need one of us to go out and honestly have an exit of $10 billion. Okay. Or more. That all of a sudden 
the fund who bet on that, and particularly in this case, we're talking about black founder, is like, oh, when I bet on black people, they can make me money. That's the feedback loop that we need. And but it's a little bit of chicken and egg, right? Well, you can't have that unless there's enough of us that are funded. But I guess just like how we desegregated any other major industry in the States, baseball, basketball, music, politics, like there's going to be maybe Colin Robinson of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, tech startups, right? If, if, if he can be the one or among the few that are going to break forth and, and build that, that deck of corn or that sense of corn, and then it, it, makes, it creates a halo effect for all the rest of us that are coming up underneath them, you know? So I think we do need that for sure. Yeah, no, I, I t- totally agree with what Brandon's saying. And I think, I, I think there certainly needs to be more dedication to um, black underrepresented women and, and women founders. Right. Um, because it shouldn't like my, my earlier comment of like, Hey, it's a numbers game. Um, I still do believe in like, you know, if there's, 0.6% of uh, VC money going to black founders, then, you know, you've got to work within what the land looks like. And if that means you have to talk to 150 people to go and like, you know, get a yes, then like do that. And it's going to be harder, but it shouldn't have to be that way. It shouldn't have to be the way where, okay, you have to build this list of hundred to 150 people to talk to. And, you know, Mr. Mr. Like, straight white guy who you know has um you know went to harvard or went to mit as well only has to talk to five people um it shouldn't be that way at all right and so you know i think there certainly has to be um you know groups who are dedicated and who see this like tremendous mismatch and opportunity um who try and solve that and so um, you know, I'd love for RBS to do that. Uh, you know, we, we ended up taking money from Harlem Capital. Um, they, they did that. And I think that, um, you know, groups like that are going to be really powerful. And, and, you know, there's, there's data that shows that they're going to perform better too, uh, just because they are considering a much broader market of people, right? Yeah, most definitely. I, you, you both are just talking about the, the general challenges of, I think a lot of us in the, in the multiple areas of our lives, at least as scholars, at least in universities that we're fortunate to have attended and, and being in that point, in that fraction of the 1% that raises money, you are both um, excited about the hustle and know that you've earned every piece of it and, and are, are wanting to forge your your path. And, and, and you also can't exist in that space without thinking about everybody else who's not in that fraction of the 1%. And as we wrap up, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, both of you could just share a little bit about um, how you view success with your ventures. And I don't mean in the, and you know, if, if we have a tremendous, both of you have a tremendous exit and it, it puts everybody else on and, and, and financially, sure, you, you may have some metrics there, but um, I know that you care deeply about your own success. You care deeply about the success of your customers, which is not always the case with every business that actually cares about how well they do. And then you're also thinking about the folks that you want to bring up with you. Take me into your mind when those thoughts are floating as you're jumping between meetings, as you're jumping between, uh, you know, different iteration sessions or prototypes. What what are you aiming for with with this? And, and what, what would a job well done look like 
for both of you? Well, I th thank you for the beautiful question. For me, uh, it's one thing and it's how can we widen the aperture of opportunity for A, our customers? And, you know, that, that goes back to the stuff that Colin was saying so eloquently about um, like empowering this class of businesses that are often overlooked. Um, but it's also widening the aperture of opportunity for our communities. Like we all know any founder that's underrepresented, whether they're indigenous or trans or, you know, uh, Latino, Latina, like they, we all, women founders know that they're inherently building not just to make their customers succeed, not just so they can be successful, but that they are like um, kind of, they're trying to cleave an opening in the otherwise asymptote that sits over the heads of like the rest of the group that they represent, okay? And so like trying to pierce through that like barrier of possibility is literally what we have to do because it's like, um, you know, if we fail, it's representative of the group. So it's like, we got to win so that we can like help the rest of the group come up. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really about like, um, yeah, one of us eat, we all eat. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I would say um, on, I can, I can speak both on the, on the business side and then on the personal side um, on the business side you know, similar to Brandon, really about empowering a lot of these extremely hardworking businesses. Some of the hardest working, like, you know, people across the world are these folks that start these like small businesses and you, you've got to manage everything. Like, you've got to manage everything. You've got to build from nothing, right? <laughs> and so um, being able to, and I, I, I love data. I love like solving, you know, data problems. And so being able to use and leverage like, you know, these cutting edge data and AI and tech tools to, to help those folks um, and to really like democratize that, that access, democratize that scalability, um, that, you know, performance upgrade that, you know, the, the best of the best have, like the Amazons have and whatnot. Um, I think that's going to be extremely powerful. And so that's, that's, you know, our, that's what we want out of this, um, from a, from a business standpoint. Um, and then from a personal standpoint, I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've like gotten the chance to, I've gotten a chance to serve on, you know, the, the board of MIT for five years now. And, you know, in that role, you meet a lot of people who I would say at some point kind of unlocked their capacity to like build and do things for the world um and like what i mean by that is like they figured out a way to uh i don't know if you call it retiring or if you call it like you know have enough just kind of revenue that's just keeping you alive that you can really just work on anything that you want at any given time and help like whoever you'd like to help and you know have a network to go and build and solve problems for people around the world um i love to be able to have that and so you know i like to sometimes personally i like to think of things in terms of you know in terms of like lifetimes right and you know if you look at someone like um you know if you if you look at like 
a billionaire, for example, you know, a billionaire with their entire like net worth, whatever you call it, could actually like provide for thousands of people, like thousands of people throughout their entire lifetime, right? Uh, which is insane, like, like it, like actually insane, um, an amount of like impact that you can have, and that's like being able to provide like the income of you know someone throughout you know an entire like eighty years of uh, of life here, and so um, I think there's a lot of power in in being able to, um, you know, use like your personal um capability like network resources to help others and i'd love to be able to kind of get to the place in in my life where i can unlock that and you know actually be able to spend my time doing that as opposed to spend my time figuring out how i can like you know provide for myself um and i think a lot of us are you know at this place where you know you live life and you've got to like you know continue to work for your next like paycheck. Right. And, um, and that's, that's important. And, and being able to provide for you, like yourself and your family. Um, but I'd love to, you know, personally be able to like have an impact and, and be able to spend my time, like providing for thousands or millions of, of, of people at some point, um, you know, with the work that I'm doing. So, yeah. Well said, I'll say guys. I mean, I think across both of, for both of you, what success looks like, a theme that is clear, which is no surprise, is, is, you know, lifting as you climb, which is Ron Brown to the core, you know, like that, that's, that's what we were all about. And that's what the program did for us when we were 17, 18 year olds in high school. And the reason why they did that is because they knew you two and everybody else, the rest of us would all go out and do that in the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Value of One, The Power of All a podcast created by the Ron Brown Scholar Program. If you want to hear more inspiring conversations like this one, don't forget to click subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about the organization, check us out at ronbrown.org.